Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. My guest today is Barbara Bitarello. Barbara is a postdoc at uh, the School of Medicine, the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Uh, so we will be talking today about polygenic risk scores. And uh, maybe for a start, uh, you could explain to us what these polygenic risk scores are. So polygenic risk scores um, have become quite uh, famous and trendy lately. Um, every week there's like literally dozens of papers published uh, using that term, but it's actually a sort of recent thing in human genetics. Um, so to, in order to explain how that works, I need to also explain something else briefly, which is what a genome-wide association study is. Um, so ever since we've had access to uh, human genetic data at a genomic scale, we've been performing these so-called uh, GWAS, uh, which is the acronym for that. And so the first one was in the early 2000s. And the goal of this kind of study is to gather as many uh, subjects or individuals as you can uh, with either a disease uh, status and also a control group or some quantitative uh, phenotype of interest that you measure. Um, and then you also get their genetic information and you hopefully try to find variants in the genome that are um, statistically significantly more common in the disease group versus the control or you know, the equivalent kind of measure for a continuous quantitative trait. Um, so ever since we, we as a community started doing these studies, um, there was a bit of disappointment because, uh, first of all, it's hard to find these genome-wide associate, associated variants because, uh, because of all the statistical uh, uh, corrections we have to do in order to avoid false positives. And as a consequence, this requires very large sample sizes, uh, which at first we really didn't have. So there's this um, increasing number of associated variants discovered in the literature because our GWAS are becoming larger. So, okay, so that's like the background on GWAS. And uh, uh, like early on, for instance, there was a GWAS done for schizophrenia with which uh, nowadays they're much larger and they didn't find much. But uh, as a way to try to extract some sense from that data, researchers then um, pooled all the variants that were not quite um, genome-wide statistically significant, but that had a trend towards lower uh, p-values, and they combined them in this so-called polygenic score. So that's like the basis of where this came from in human genetics, although equivalent of that had been, using in, been used in animal and uh, crop uh, genetics. Um, but so, and it's actually mathematically a very simple thing. Um, you have these uh, effect sizes that you obtain from the GWAS, right? So for each variant that you tested in the genome, you have an associated effect, uh, an effect size or uh, odds ratio if it's a binary trait. And then you, every individual will have an effect size at every locus. It might be smaller or higher depending on which genotype the individual carries, but everyone has the value. So everyone has a polygenic risk score, which is one big advantage of it uh, over um, looking for, say, rare variants with big effect. Uh, 
And then you, what you do is you add up all these effects. And there are a lot of assumptions going into this. You're assuming um, that they are independent. Um, you are considering a, an additive um, heritability, which seems reasonable based on uh, other studies that a lot of the heritability is captured by that. Um, and that's basically how it works. It's really a, a, like a weighted sum of effect sizes. And what you're weighting it by is the genotype. Um, so if you have, uh, if I have in a locus, say, alleles A and G, and I have the estimate for allele G as some value, I will add it only once because I only have one A. And if I have two Gs, that value will be zero for me, and it might be uh, two for some other person that is GG. So over, and these variants all have very small effects on the phenotype, but when you add them all together, you have something that may explain a certain proportion of the variation in that trait in a population. And um, this is the so-called um, um, variance explained that you also often see in these papers. And there is also some controversy, I believe, around polygenic risk scores. So what what is it due to? Yeah. So there's there's some um, there's a lot of criticism around it. Uh, and this is from the simple uh, standpoint of like um, the potential for these kinds of tools being used for, say, embryo selection or uh, like, in other words, uh, and and if, well, not in other words. So embryo selection is one concern by some people because either because some individuals are concerned about embryo selection in itself, but also that that carries consequences potentially for the whole concept of improving um, the genetic pool or like getting rid of uh, individuals that don't pass your criteria on a pre like uh, pre gestational phase. Um, and I do think all of these concerns are valid, um, because, uh, science doesn't occur in a vacuum. Um, we would like to believe that that is so. And sometimes some of us fall into that temptation of thinking that there's such a thing as pure science, but, um, we have to be very responsible and always, uh, engage with the public and explain, um, that yes, things can be used for for harm or for good uh, on the good side of it which is what most researchers will be uh, saying they're interested in we want to be able to um, screen people for risk right so uh, the justification for these studies is not to select embryos although depending on uh, legislation and what happens in the coming decades that might happen and um, or not in some countries um, but the goal is to try to screen people. So one very good example is cardiovascular disease. So if you have, uh, we know that there's a very complex condition. It's very influenced by habits like smoking and what you eat and the amount of exercise you get, but it is also heavily influenced by genetics. So given that you have good habits, your genetics will still influence your risk. And if you have bad habits, it might be way worse if you have certain genetic profiles than if you have others and also the impact that statins would have on certain individuals um, because statins are an effective way to lower cholesterol, but for some people it would um, increase risk for other problems. So one very immediate goal is to have a way to screen people and be like, you are at a very increased 
genetic risk for this kind of thing and there's some family history and you're not exercising so really we should start you on statins to avoid a massive uh problem at, at a early uh at a young age for instance so that's one good aspect of it and the other one would be to select people for GWAS studies actually uh because often how you define a phenotype of a disease it's often controversial for instance for neuropsychiatric disease that is very much so so if you're using some kind of genetic screening instead of uh um, the more arbitrary phenotypic screening um that could also be interesting but there's definitely room for concerns in terms of selecting people i mean embryos really at this point um yeah and for a lot of these things there's no precedent so we really need to uh to tread carefully and um and never assume that it's all going to work out if we just let it uh let it flow and so we've acknowledged the um, ethical uh concerns but there are some also more like scientific or technical criticisms so i think you told me before that some people go so far as to say that these uh polygenic risk scores are useless. What is that based on? So yeah, those are more like uh technical uh criticisms which is more like my uh, area of expertise. Um and yes, I I do um see uh on Twitter and I read discussions and and just talking really to other scientists. Um a lot of scientists feel like this is a waste of effort and time. to be uh doing research on this because basically every study with polygenic risk score you're trying to uh, most studies you're trying to say okay we can predict this amount of the variation in this cohort with this score and it's always a low value for most standards i guess uh what is low is <laughs> open to discussion but you know most people are thinking on the individual level right they're like okay so um I've been working on this for a few years so now when I see a variance explained percentage of 5.5% for ADHD for instance PRS I think that's huge but I understand that that's um that seems awfully underwhelming to most people because you're thinking on the on the individual level like if I do a PRS for you and I tell you well you know your value for this or that is kind of high what does that actually mean to you and at the moment for most conditions that have been surveyed it wouldn't tell you much uh in terms of you individually um but and so i think i might be wrong cuz i am not one of the people criticizing it most but i think that is a a valid criticism because uh it does not seem powerful enough for that kind of uh um prediction on an individual level so you you're not going to look at someone's dna and be like you will be 180 centimeters tall and yes i speak centimeters i guess that's about 6 feet so uh it's not like that although for very heritable conditions such as height you would get a ballpark um maybe with a reliable confidence interval based on genetics but of course we know that um nutrition of the mother while pregnant and early infancy nutrition and c- diseases even if a baby gets a lot of infections in early age that would also impact growth um so 
it's not deterministic in the way I guess people expect. I think that's a relief that we're not completely determined by our genes. I do think that that's a relief, but I understand that from a clinical standpoint, it might be, it might seem useless to some people. Um, And I see a lot of criticism coming from uh, physicians, and I understand because at this moment in their practice, it's not like they can reliably use this to inform their patients. Um, So at this point, I see it more as a complementary approach, but I am very convinced that in the coming years, personalized genomics will be a reality. It's not whether one individual wants it or not. I just don't see how it would be otherwise. And if it will be polygenic scores or some derivation of it, um, it's unclear, but... um, my interest is methodological. So I want to understand how this measure works. What is it really capturing? Because when it doesn't transfer, not only to other ancestries, but even in the same ancestry, but a different cohort, you see very different predictions. So you see that mathematically, it's a very simple equation, but it's capturing like simple, simple uh calculations often involve a lot of assumptions. So there are a lot of things that go in there and that we're assuming that we know their relative roles, but we actually don't. So I'm very interested in that part. Um, So yeah, there's criticism because at this moment, for most diseases, if you get a good family history, uh, you would explain as much or more than the polygenic score, but not everyone has a family history. Uh, or they think they do, but they're actually not, they don't have the parents they think they do, or they're adopted, or they don't know that they're adopted, um, or their parents didn't get good medical uh, health treatment, so they don't really know what they had. Like, you might have had a grandmother that had breast cancer, but you don't know. Um, So all of these things, and polygenic score, everyone can have one. So as we improve accuracy um, to its limit with increasing sample size, I do think it will have some use. Uh, It will not preclude other things. And definitely lifestyle is a major factor, which again, I find it a relief because you can change that. So So to better understand these issues, these more technical issues, uh, let's dive a little deeper into how the... PRS, polygenic risk score, is calculated. And uh, as you said, we should probably start with the GWAS. So how do we get, assuming that we have the data, and maybe you could talk about what the data looks like, and when we have this data, how do we get these uh, effect sizes? So let's take the UK Biobank as an example, because uh, listeners may have heard of it. So it's this very uh, interesting resource. Um, You have genetic data and several uh, phenotypic traits collected um, in the UK from more than 500,000 individuals. Um, So most of them of European, like British ancestry. Um, Although there are individuals from other ancestries like living in the UK, but they are minority groups. and then you have this very like well curated data and more importantly it's a very large sample size so let's look at height because it's what i've been working on um, as an example so you have um they did a gwas for height in more than more than um 
360,000 individuals for the UK Biobank, for which, you know, they pass certain criteria and they have, so what do they have? They have the genotypes of each individual uh, for millions of positions in the genome. They have their height, the age at which that height was collected. And um, it's a lot of uh, more like elderly individuals. uh, So mostly within like 40 to 60 years old, I think. So you have the age when that height measurement was taken and you have their biological sex um, and um, and other variables that are not related to height as far as we know. So, um, so, so then what you can do is you can do a GWAS for height. So what you would do is you would gather all this information and query each position in the genome. And uh, you basically do a linear regression for each position in the genome between the genotypes uh, so let's say, as the example I gave earlier, you have like A and G as the alleles for a locus, um, and you're measuring the effect of the allele G. It could be A, it doesn't really matter, but then uh, you measure, um, basically it's the slope of um, of this regression between the genotypes AA, AG, and GG, and the phenotype. And you may be wondering, but you know, height is also affected by sex and age. So yes, that's after we regress out those effects. Um, And also population structure, which is a thing that plagues GWAS, uh, which we might talk more about. And so in in that linear regression, what's the predictor and what's the, the outcome? The predictor is the genotype. So you have three, but we're assuming biallelic loci. So like, let's say AA, AG and GG are the predictors. And the predicted variable is the the residuals of height after you've regressed out sex and age and age squared, actually, because this age is tricky. Um, You know, your height increases until a certain point in your life, then it stays the same, and then it goes down when you're old. And so when, when you say regressed out, can this be achieved just by including all these predictors in this one regression so can we just make a regression where the height is the outcome and the uh, the genotype the sex and the age are predictors yes i believe it's it's equivalent i think it depends on the software you're using there's like some differences in how exactly you calculate i think more importantly it's the um, the logic behind it but so I have run a GWAS on Plink, and in Plink, I had to manually first do a a regression between height, sex, and age squared, take the residuals, and then do a GWAS between those residuals and the genotypes. But there are many software to do GWAS, and I believe it may be done differently uh, elsewhere. So then, so this, in this case, it's a quantitative trait, right? So you will have a slope to that regression. So let's say, Ideally, it's something that's really, um, there's quite a, a slope there. So either going up or down. Um, and then that indicates that you do have a genetic effect. Then something that looks more flat, uh, the line looks more flat, then it doesn't really matter what genotype you have. And as I, I hinted before, most of these effects are small. So if you were looking at these plots, you would not be very impressed, but they might be statistically significant or near significance. And Regardless if they pass a threshold or not for genome-wide significance, which then you have to 
control for multiple testing. So it's millions of positions. So you're bound to found some to find some uh, low p values by chance. So you really need to correct that for multiple testing. Actually, I'm I'm wondering if you really have to because wouldn't that sort itself out because you you're aggregating a lot of these laws. It's not like you're claiming that this one particular log has a huge effect, but you have uh, I don't know hundreds of thousands or millions of these laws and uh, each of them has a small effect and whether so basically when when you do this judgment call whether it's significant or not you're claiming is it exactly zero or is it different from zero and if it's close enough to zero then you know who cares it, it will like this very small number will be multiplied by your by your genotype and if you round it down to zero or if you live it as that very small number what why would that be a problem yeah no that's a very good question and i think it's um it's easier to explain if i mention that you know people don't do gwas with the intention of doing a prs necessarily if that was the goal then i i guess you are right that that wouldn't matter as much but that's sort of like something that happens afterwards um, with the GWAS summary statistics, as we call them. So these, uh, the, the betas or effect sizes, they're standard errors for each position. So that's what we use in the PRS and the p-values um, if you want to do some kind of uh, thresholding. But in GWAS themselves, what you have is a clinical or sometimes not clinical, but usually clinical interest in understanding what variants help explain a trait. So that's very different from the PRS interest in predicting a phenotype. So it depends on your intention. So then if you do a GWAS for, uh, for schizophrenia and you're looking for variants that have an effect that is causal in schizophrenia, which is a difficult thing to prove, and uh, GWAS is not even enough, like, you know, you would still need to, to do more work there. You wanna make sure that what you're claiming that is statistically significantly associated with it is significant, and that it's either the causal variant itself or it's tightly linked with the causal variant, and you can look, you can zoom in and look into that. So you don't wanna be looking at every variant because of course not all of them affect schizophrenia. So that's the basis. But if you're doing prediction, if you wanna put people in a spectrum based on their genetics and say, oh, you have an increased risk of schizophrenia. So I don't know, don't take mushrooms maybe or something. <laughs> um, then, uh, then that, could still work even if you don't use all the variants. I mean, only the significantly uh, associated variants, um, which is an interesting thing because early on uh, people thought, well, we have to use the ones that pass the threshold, which are often very few. Um, and what they saw is that although those are the reliably associated variants, if you are way more flexible in that thresholding when it comes to the PRS, you actually get better predictions. Yeah. Because uh, nature doesn't care about 0 0.05, right? It's not like hardwired in physics or biology or genetics. Yeah, right. So, But as I said, it, there's a difference between predicting and understanding causal relationships. Yeah. So 
And uh, I would say causal relationships are way harder. <laughs> and it's not what I do. Um, but in terms of prediction, yes, because prediction is statistics. So, you know, you include more data points, as long as you no don't include too many like spurious data points that will just increase noise, then you actually get better prediction. And so from these betas, from these coefficients, uh, from the linear regressions, we just get the PRS by multiplying, as you said, we multiply genotypes by by these coefficients, right? And that's that's our PRS? Yes, basically. And if you're talking about a binary trait, like a status, right? Like schizophrenia, no schizophrenia, then you would you could have something which is not a beta as in the beta, um, the slope of the regression, but you would have a odds ratio. Like a, a logistic regression. Yes. But you know, it's these are it's very small differences in terms of implementation. It's just um, you know, the yeah. I just wanted to point that out that there it's it's slightly different how like the effect size uh, concept is a bit different when you're talking about something that is binary versus something that is uh, quantitative. So, but the, the same logic applies. Um, it's just that also when it comes to binary traits, ideally people want at some point to have a cutoff at which if you're above that value, you have a certain condition or more likely you will say, if you're above this value, your chances of having this thing are X with this confidence interval or something like that. Whereas for height or something like height, what you would see is like for each increasing decile of PRS, you have an increase of X centimeters in height because it's continuous. And uh, you mentioned that these PRSs, uh, these scores, they're not super predictive, right? They're, uh, they sometimes have very modest uh, percentage of explained variance. And I'm wondering in, in such a, an important question, why are we still in like 2021 using a linear model? Like surely if you fit some kind of deep neural network to the genotype data in the height, you would get much, much uh, better predictions. Why, why are we still uh, using these linear models? I don't know that I'm qualified to deeply answer that, but so far what I've seen is that um, the fancier things um, often do not do a better job than uh, a linear regression for a lot of things. That does capture a lot of the main trend of things that uh, like things like this. So um, that is what I know so far in terms of the attempts that have been made. Intuitively, I would agree with you, but what I've seen is that in practice, it one could argue maybe we don't have enough training data, maybe because machine learning is is what you feed it, and there's um, although you know on a broader scale, we could say that this it it is a kind of uh, machine learning in a sense because you are um, so when you do a PRS, you are taking these summary statistics from a GWAS, let's say it was performed in the UK Biobank European Ancestry Individuals. So you have those effect sizes and standard errors. And then, and then you go to a different cohort, presumably of European Ancestry as well, but not the same cohort at all. And then, um, and then you use those values to calculate PRS. And, um, and what you would see is that there's a uh, 
So basically, it's a problem of prediction, right? Like you could, uh, let's say, uh, in that test data, you could split it into train versus prediction and see um, how well you can predict the trait using that PRS. So it is, in a sense, like a supervised kind of machine learning, I think. But, you know, these deep neural networks, as you're talking about, um, I don't know how much it has been done so far, but the, the things I've seen... It's an overwhelming amount of work, and the improvement was not substantial, but I'm not totally up to date on this. Just one, one thing I wanted to clarify. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, the day, if all you have from, let's say, the biobank are these um, beta coefficients. Right? I wouldn't be surprised that you cannot do much better than just linearly multiplying them by... Uh, by genotypes, but uh, I imagine if you actually gave it the raw data, the genotypes, then it could learn a much better model than we can extract. So that there's a good, uh, there's a lot of literature on that for PRS, um, because you have these things like Bayesian linear um, unbiased predictors and other methods that use the genotype data, not the summary statistics to um, to make the PRS. And um, you do see an improvement often, but it's it's much less than you would think. And it's very computationally intensive. And you have to have access to that data, which you often don't. So uh, unless you have acquired access to all of the UK Biobank data, and even when you request access, your access is for the specific things that you need in order to carry out a certain study. So uh, the summary statistics from the UK Biobank are available to all researchers, for instance, and from several other studies, although even that is not always available, which I find it um, inexcusable at this point. But, you know, in the GWAS catalog, you can find a lot of summary statistics, and that allows you to use all the methods that only rely on summary statistics. But um, this BLOOP and other methods that um, do generally give better um accuracy, they're not that much better. Um, and they require that you have access to a data, like data that you often don't. Um, so I think if if the ultimate goal is only prediction, uh, which it is the ultimate goal, then probably we would do best using that. But there's a whole field of people trying to understand the properties of PRS. And of, and those researchers would be unable to be carrying out any research if they depended on on having hundreds of thousands of individuals uh, to to do this. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, you do have. So that being said, usually when you're using a PRS to test on a different cohort, you do have the genotypes because uh, you need that information to be testing it. Um, and you could presumably do these methods, but as I said, um, so far, the comparative studies where you compare performances, and um, there's quite a few of those now, it has been, it's not substantially better, so it's not very convincing to people that they should be using that because it's way more difficult. You need a lot of memory, um, and uh, yeah, but as I said, it's a field in, in expansion, and there are a lot of people working on these methods. Um, so, yeah, you're correct in thinking that it would do better. It does. It's just not that much better. 
And how did you personally uh, become interested in polygenic race scores? How did this research start? Um, yeah, so I this is something I only started working on in the past uh, two to three years as a postdoc here at the University of Pennsylvania. My background is I'm a biologist and with a PhD in genetics, like evolutionary genetics. So I had never worked with really with any sort of like biobank or clinical data before. Um, even my first postdoc was more um, focused on more traditional human population genetics. And um, I became interested in like complex diseases uh, in my previous postdoc and like uh, of course, the the genetic aspect of them, because the the, the non genetic aspect, I, I I can't do much about. Um, so I became interested in that because you see a lot of our diseases are complex in nature, most of them, and not just diseases, but traits like height. Um, and I wanted to study that more in depth, and um, but while staying focused, like in my background as an evolutionary geneticist, so. And um, my supervisor here at the University of Pennsylvania, Ian Matheson, um, is such a person because his work is a lot uh, heavily evolutionarily gen evolutionary genetics inclined, but also he had just started a group at the School of Medicine. So I thought that was a good opportunity to transition into a bit more, slightly more applied human genetics things. Um, as I said earlier, I, th I see this field of personalized genomics as inevitable. Uh, it's like an inevitable thing that's going to happen. And I wanted to um, be a part of it and understand how it works for, for my future research or anything I decided to do. Um, and uh, as I joined his group, uh, we were talking about the genetics of height and looking into that and the the notion that um, we can't really predict, uh, we can't get the same variance explained when we look at height. In we, and height is a relatively well understood phenotype. So, when I realized talking to Ian that you couldn't predict height in the same way you could in European ancestry individuals, in other ancestries, I became interested in that and why that was. Uh, like, were there actual some effect size differences with their other causal variants, or was it just like statistical problems because of the lack of diversity in GWAS? So didn't mention this, but um, it's more than about 80% of all individuals that were ever screened in GWAS uh, are of European ancestry. So it makes sense that you don't get a good uh, transferability of these scores, but mechanistically, uh, understanding that was something that was lacking. So just to summarize, um, it, it, it was well known that first uh, these uh, GWASs, these uh, genome-wide association studies, are mostly done on the people of European ancestry. And it was also known that um, these results do not transfer well or if you compute from these results the polygenic risk scores, they do not transfer well to uh, people or uh, populations of, of different ancestries. Um, and so your research question 
was to to figure out why, right? Yes, uh, correct. I wanted to. Um, so there was. So first, confirming what you asked. Uh, yes, the G was a uh, problem is um, is known, uh, and the PRS problem. I would say when I started this project to a lesser extent, like it was expected because of the GWAS situation. And yes, there were a few papers, but at the time, very few. Um, there was this 2017 paper by Alicia Martin and collaborators um, where she looked at um, polygenic risk scores in um, the thousand genomes data where you don't have the phenotypes. So just looking at the scores themselves, you found this big bias, like the distributions were heavily different for height, say, like they were much lower for African ancestry individuals than for Europeans, even though we know, even though we didn't have that data for thousand genomes, that their heights are not that different. So it was known for a fact that that had to be inaccurate, like it was not representing phenotypic differences. Um, and uh, she looked at other traits as well. And so I would say that really raised um, awareness to the fact that uh, there was something going on there that we had to look into. So that uh, that was a kickoff point for me as well. So I wanted to mechanistically understand why that is so. Um, and if possible, to try to disentangle different factors that might be contributing to this. And by the time that you posed this question, did you already have access to the necessary data? So, for example, to Biobank and to other databases that, that you used? Or uh, did you have to go through um, all these entangled steps to, to get access? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and it's not easy nor fast. Um, and it might also be you might not have the funds, depending where you are. Um, I was lucky that I joined Ian's lab and he already had all of that in place for, for the projects. So um, it, it wasn't even just the UK Biobank. We, we used other data sets as well, like the Women's Health Initiative data, um, Health and Retirement Study, Jackson Heart Study. We had genotypes from those individuals as well as their phenotypes. And yeah, so I was able to start right away. Uh, okay, so you had the data, but what was your plan? How were you going to basically debug right, these polygenic risk scores and understand what's what's going wrong with them? So, yeah, one first, um, I think, original idea we had about how to go about this was to really, instead of focusing on different ancestry groups as discrete units, which is often what is done at the time, it was how these things were done, was to purposely look for admixed individuals. Um, so in our case, we focused on mostly African-Americans, although there were also individuals in the UK Biobank that had African and European ancestry. Um, so individuals that carry both ancestries um, as a result of, um, of uh, admixture and I, in the past few hundred years at most. Um, and we wanted to look at that so that we could look at ancestry as a continuous variable that it is rather than discrete groups because, I mean, that seems more accurate, but also because we wanted to understand how this prediction loss is varying with ancestry. So what you sort of had was that you have different PRS values for 
a group classified discreetly in the thousand genomes as African or European or East Asian or American, but actually these are all like ancestry components that are a continuum. So, and also that would allow us to look, um, to control a bit for um, inter-cohort uh, differences by looking at the um, ancestry as a continuum like that. So uh, the way we planned this study was, okay, so we have interesting data sets. We have the betas and effect size from the UK Biobank. Let's see how well we can predict height uh, using those statistics in um, all of these different data sets. So the Jackson Heart Study and Women's Health Initiative are African-Americans. Um, and then you, we had the Health and Retirement Study, which based on principal components, we roughly, uh, there has to be a cutoff at some point. So, you know, we required for the African group that they had at least 5% African ancestry. Um, and there were individuals that really only had European ancestry in the HRS. So then we kept them as like our European ancestry test group that was independent from the UK Biobank. Um, and then, but we also had the African or the admixed one, which had individuals with various degrees of European ancestry. So some of them had very low, some of them had a lot, um, not not above 50% though. So we cut off at that so that they were more African than more than European ancestry. And we looked at prediction for all of those individuals. And then we plotted this as like, um, so we had ancestry inference for each individual for each position in their genome. So we do this with local ancestry inference. And then we average that out. So you have this like global proportion of ancestry for an individual. So, you know, some individuals, as I said, had low, others had high. So we plotted this on the x-axis. And on the y-axis, we had the proportion of variance in height that we can explain with PRS. So what we saw is this uh, remarkable, uh, apparently linear trend, although later we saw that it was not quite linear, but it looked, it was definitely very significantly um, uh, linear, if you use the linear model, like uh, that it increases. So the last point in the x-axis would be the European ancestry group. And um, the point closest to zero would be individuals with basically 0% European ancestry. And you can then have this regression. Uh, and the slope and the prediction was, and with that, you could theoretically predict how well you could explain um, prediction for anyone along that line. Um, although, of course, it's not perfectly linear, but it was, um, so that's like the first figure in our paper. Uh, that linearity uh, or approximate linearity was uh, the first like um, strong result. We expected to see differences, but frankly, I did not expect it to be so huge like that. Just to make this clear, so far, what you got, and I, I don't know, maybe this is like a post hoc bias in me, uh, but it sounds like that was just confirming more or less what you already knew, and that was consistent with your hypothesis, right? That the uh, proportion of, of, let's say, the African ancestry explains the predictive accuracy of the PRS, but that didn't necessarily teach you anything new, or, or did it? No, 
it just showed us that it's approximately linear um, in a very uh, strong way. So before what you had, um, and not a lot of it, was that you would have like two points, right? You would have a point for African and a point for European, and you'd be like, okay, there's this difference. And, you know, inferring a regression line there would be incorrect because we didn't have any points in between. So now we did. And we just, right. uh, yeah. So that that wasn't like earth shattering or anything, but it was definitely very interesting to see. Um, and then we were able to go into the more like uh, nitty gritty details. Um, so one first thing, so there were a few things we imagined were uh, impacting this. I will just name a few. Um, one of them is... Um, allele frequency differences. So we know from human population genetics that um, just as a, a, a fruit of how we expanded and colonized the globe, um, different parts of the world, um, some populations were a bit isolated from each other for some period of time and they drifted, like genetic drift affected allele frequencies and, um, and other uh, genetic patterns in different ways. Um, people often want to interpret all the differences as the result of selection, but actually a lot of it is just drift. Uh, some of it can be local selection for specific traits, like you have skin color where there's evidence for selection and uh, lactase resistance. But, um, you know, a lot of things are just allele frequencies and presumably um, uh, changing because of drift um, across populations. So populations that share more drift uh, would be more, um, would have less allele frequency differences and populations that have uh, more diverged drift would have more different allele frequency differences. Um, and the same goes for recombination patterns. How, and how would those differences explain the difference in the, in the prediction accuracy? So the way to... Um, one way you can infer the genetic variance uh, in the in a population or in a group is by calculating the additive genetic variance, and that basically what that looks as looks at is the heterozygosity, and so think of a locus where you have uh, um, p and q are the frequencies of the different alleles, so. You know, if if one allele is very common, this 2PQ is going to be not such a high value. But if they're mostly at intermediate frequencies, you have a higher value. And then you multiply that by beta, the effect size squared, and you have the additive genetic variance. So because the genetic variance in a population will depend not only on the effect size of the variant, but whether it's present or not. So you detected a variant with an effect in the European cohort. Let's say it has a considerable effect on height, but then you go to the other cohort and that allele is basically absent. So although even if you consider that the effect size is the same, it's not different, it's just not present really. So when you do proportions, uh, proportion of variants explained, that will depend on the actual variants you have in the population. So that is why the allele frequency matters. If you had the exact same allele frequencies across these populations, you would for sure see a much more similar prediction. Um, but maybe not the same because we saw that other factors have an influence as well. So, so I see how that would work if, for example, so we're doing our GWAS in the European populations and uh, 
if the European, if these European um, communities, they don't have some allele, like they don't have it all at all, and that allele um, affects the height, then it makes sense that um, we wouldn't assign any weight to that allele and our PRSs would be um, off in the communities, in the populations where this allele is present. But assuming that the allele is present in the European population to some extent, so let's say that allele is 20% in the European population and 80% in the African population, like it's not obvious to me in that situation that we would um, suffer any prediction loss just due to a different frequency, as long as that frequency is not like very close to zero. Okay, that's a good question. The extent to which that would impact it is something that I guess one would have to devise mathematically, and that would rely on assumptions um, that are often not true. So this is a very complex problem. So you have basically the scenario you just outlined, and then the, uh, the opposite one, which is it's somewhat common in European ancestry and somewhat rare in the African ancestry. I'm not even talking absent. So let's say it's the other way around. It's like 80% and 20%. Um, if that happens for one variant, that won't be a big deal. But because height, for instance, is impacted by at least 3,000 independent genome-wide association variants, then if you have that for a lot of variants, then you could have a difference because they're just way less common in the African uh, background. So that variant will have a smaller contribution to height just because it's not common, not because it has a different effect size. Yes, but why would that affect the prediction accuracy? So yes, those coefficients will be mostly ignored. But then again, since this allele is is absent, let's say in, in a specific individual, right? The specific individual doesn't have that allele and therefore they would not get the effect associated with that allele. Mm -hmm. But that's only fair, right? Because that allele does not contribute to the height of that person. Right, but so the problem is not on the individual level, it's in the population level. So if you're thinking about an allele that have has a substantial effect in the European ancestry, background. And then you go to the African one, and it's pretty rare. Only a few individuals carry it. Uh, it's there. It has an effect, but it's only a few individuals. Then when you're predicting the proportions, proportion of variants explained by PRS in that group, it's not per individual, it's per group, right? right. So then, um, then that makes a difference. You are correct that if the individual doesn't have the allele, then we should include it in the PRS. It, that is how the PRS is calculated. But then as a group, which is how um, PRS is useful so far in the papers, that's how we want to see proportions of variance explained. No, I, I understand that. But uh, in order to, in order for the polygenic risk score to be less accurate, in the population, it has to make, I, I know I'm talking simplistically a bit, but it has to make errors, right? It has to make inaccurate predictions because if for every individual, the accuracy is as high in the African population as it is in the European population, then why would it be less accurate in the aggregate? Um, 
let me think of another way to explain this. Um, so when we do the proportions, uh, proportion of variance explained by uh, PRS, what we're doing is um, we're doing a linear model of uh, PRS, I mean, of height determined by sex age, age square. And then we do another model where we include all of that plus the PRS. And we're, see, we're checking what is the difference in partial R squared. Um, so, so basically what we're saying is after we've accounted for other factors, how much, uh, of, the, how much of the variance can I explain with the PRS? The additive genetic variance in this hypothetical scenario that I outlined, where you have a lot of variants that are more common in Europe than in African backgrounds, and actually that does not seem implausible because GWAS are biased to more common variants in the detection cohort, then um, your upper threshold of variance, genetic variance, is different across ancestry. So the maximum that you could possibly predict is different by definition, because you have less additive genetic variant variants segregating in the African group. So it's like, even if all of the other things are the same, you're just not, you don't have the variation um, in that population enough to have the same additive genetic variants. So you would have different values for Europe and Africa in this, uh, for European ancestry and African ancestry in this example, um, which you often do. And then additive genetic variants, as I said, it only depends on allele frequency and the effect sizes, but um, we're assuming that the effect sizes are correct in, in this, uh, but it, it could also be that they're actually different across ancestries, which is a further complication, which is why I said the problem is complex, but let's say it's the same. So if you have an effect size of 0.01 in European ancestry, and it's the same in the African background, but that allele is just very rare, then the additive genetic contribution of that allele in that population is small because of its being rare. Um, and in fact, if you had done the GWAS in that group instead, you probably not have detected that variant as significant because it's not common enough to pass significance. So yeah, it gets very like <laughs> mathematical at this point. And you know, it's in these kinds of studies, it's often difficult to disentangle <laughs> the the biology from the the, the statistical, uh, but more methodological problems. Um, Okay, so based on what you just explained, I think it makes so like I think I I understand it. Now let let me let me tell you the way I understand it, and you tell me whether it makes any sense. Um, so you're saying that these um, common variants in the in the European population they explain a lot of variants, and because they are absent in the African population, we're sort of taking that variance away. Um, but the, the assumption, and probably the, the correct one, I don't know, uh, the, the assumption is that the total variance in the height is more or less the same across the populations, right? And to me, what this means is because we, by reducing the frequency of those alleles, we sort of take in some variation 
a way, there must be other alleles in the African population that sort of take the role of those alleles in the European population that are less less frequent, right? Um, but if, as you say, if everything was equal, um, like if there were no extra alleles on the African side, but there were just some European alleles that uh, their frequency would be reduced on the African side, we would just see the total variation go down, right? Because we take away, we reduce one source of height variation by reducing those allele frequencies. And so we would just see smaller um, contribution from those alleles, but also smaller total variation with the proportion remaining constant. But apparently this is not so, apparently uh, probably, I'm assuming that the total variation is comparable, uh, but that just means that there are other alleles that have taken the role of this high-impact alleles in the African population. So, in other words, it seems to me that these allele frequencies, um, the situation that, that we were discussing just now, that where there are some common alleles on the European side, and they're less common on the African side, by itself, like causally, this does not um, impact the accuracy, but it's just, uh, we can conclude from this, if the total variation is comparable, we can conclude from this that there are just some variants on the African side that were not discovered on the European side. Does that seem plausible to you? Plausible, yes. Um, that is not necessarily what's happening, though. So because so there are a few things. One, it's not that this is what we observed. So I was more like trying to explain a hypothesis. So hypothesis, um, additive genetic variants in the variants that we are using in the PRS is different. If that is so, and it's lower in the African ancestry, then you would have a lower proportions of variants explained by genetics because you have less additive genetic variants in those variants. Under the assumption that the total variance is the same. The total phenotypic variance? Yes. Yeah. Which we also tested. So that was one hypothesis. And yes, every single test we did, we had to make a several other assumptions because as I hinted, these things are not easy to disentangle. So if you assume that you have same phenotypic variants, roughly, um, and you're seeing a very different prediction accuracy, then you would conclude by extension that it is somewhere in the genetics. What exactly remains to be seen, but that would just point that it is genetics and not like just different phenotypic variants. Um, so actually, maybe I should start by that. We looked at that, the phenotypic variants. So after you control for sex, age, and um, age squared, and all the, the interactions of those terms in each cohort. Um, we tested to see if maybe variance in phenotype was different as you increase the European ancestry. And it isn't. We tried to fit more complicated models that account for that. It really, we don't see a difference from it just being variance one. So uh, that's good. And so that makes it okay for us to assume that phenotypic variance, at least in our study, was the same throughout. Um, which which su is supported by other studies that just look at height, really, and find uh, similar things. So, of course, you might have a population that, for some reason, 
uh, circumstantial cultural has more um, uh, different proportion of the sexes or, um, you know, the the age of the individuals, other things. But once you control for that, uh, you don't really see a different uh, difference in phenotypic variance. So if you assume that is the same and that your proportions of variance that you can explain, I'm going to phrase it now as like by genetics, not by the PRS, is uh, basically the ratio, like it's the ratio of the genetic component by the phenotypic component, right? You have a total of phenotypic variance, some proportion of which is genetic in nature. Uh, the other is whatever else that we can't look at, uh, and we just call it environment or error. Um, and then, so your additive genetic variance will give you the upper limit to how much that can be. And in that scenario that I was describing, if for whatever reason, and there's reason to believe this could be a GWAS bias thing, um, you have most variants in the GWAS that are detected tend to not be rare in European ancestry, then if a, a substantial proportion of them are more rare in the African component, then you would have less additive genetic variants in those variants. Um, and then you would see a reduced prediction with this assumption about the phenotype, which we did verify, and it seems plausible. Now, this carries problems of their own because it depends on, are, do you have the same variants genotyped in all these different data sets? And no, you don't. Um, and so there's other issues, but we saw that at most you see this like 8% reduction between um, the HRS individuals that have African ancestry and the ones that only have European ancestry. We see a difference in 8%. So it, the additive genetic variance is 8% lower in the African background. So, you know, if that were the only thing happening, then you would see sort of an 8% lower prediction um, in the African groups, but it's actually um, more like 70 something percent reduction. So this is interesting though, it, there is a difference. Um, yeah, so, th so this explains part of that discrepancy, right? It explains like part 8, of it. 8% or however many percent of. Yeah. And the expectation before our study was that based on other papers, people would just say, well, we expect it to be reduced because of allele frequency differences and uh, linkage to equilibrium differences, which is um, uh, another thing we looked at. So basically, um, when you do a GWAS and you detect an associated variant, uh, if you're doing a comprehensive study and you have millions of variants, it's safe to assume based on a lot of previous work that you're either capturing the causal variant itself or something very close to it. So like physically, genetically close, close in the genome. So statistically associated in such a way that their frequencies vary together. So that even if the variant you're looking at is not the causal variant, it's tightly physically linked to the causal variant, uh, which means recombination uh, that happens every generation has not broken down their um, their relationship so that they're inherited together. That's what linkage to equilibrium is. And mostly that correlates with proximity in the chromosome. Um, although sometimes you might have extended linkage to equilibrium in some parts of the genome. Um, so we know based on recombination maps that these uh, patterns vary across ancestries, in particular between African and European ancestry. There are some regions of the genome where it's very similar, but in some regions, it's very different. So basically, uh, overall, there's been um, 
you have more LD in the European ancestry um, uh, populations than the African ones because of population genetics that I won't have time to go into. So when you're capturing a variant in a GWAS done in European ancestry, and you're saying, okay, this is tightly linked to some causal variant, it might not be causally linked it might not be in tight linkage with the same causal variant in a different ancestry chromosome. So, um, so those the allele frequencies and this were the main things we thought would be driving um, this pattern. And we did a number of analyses to try to investigate this one. Um, and we did find um, it's we did find some evidence that as you have a higher recombination rates in certain parts of the genome in the African background, you do have um, less of a prediction and accuracy when you compare to the Europeans. Okay, so that would hint that there is effective recombination, like when you have a lot of, um, I'm sorry, I think I said it wrong. So when you have less recombination in the African background, uh, you would tend to have less of a difference between African and ancestry in the prediction. But if as you increase recombination, rates in the genome, those areas of the genome, if you calculate PRS just based on those regions, then you have a greater difference between the ancestries. So what that suggested is that, yeah, and that's um, in the way we formulated this test, it uh, supports the notion that recombination rates do have an impact in the prediction accuracy. So because if there wasn't such an effect, you wouldn't see these differences. Um, Another way we tested this was by looking at, uh, so most of these data sets were genotypes. So you have like SNP arrays. It's like either a few hundred thousand or a few million variants that are genotyped. But uh, some of these data sets had also heavily imputed data where you have way more variants. Um, so presumably if you had a higher SNP density, so more variants, you would be able to better tag the the causal variant in the African ancestry, even though there are linkage equilibrium differences. And what we saw is we saw no difference when we used uh, imputed data. So it seems that result in itself, I think, just supports that the, the SNP chips are capturing most of the relevant variation. Um, I don't think it suggests there's no effect of recombination, but it does suggest it's not huge and it that the chips are getting much of this variation. Um, so our conclusion from that part was that, yes, there is an effect. It was definitely, even when the predictions were more similar in the low recombination bins, they were still very different. So you would still, you still saw um, a huge um, prediction accuracy loss compar uh, comparatively. So basically it's not enough to explain what we saw. And then you could be like, okay, but there's this and there's the allele frequencies. Well, actually, these things are not independent. So it's not like we can just add them up and be like, okay, we found the total uh, that explains it. But um, we do find that those things by themselves don't explain this. Um, and even if we combine them as independent things, they wouldn't. So, and they're not independent, so we can't do that. So we investigated other things. Um, and most notably, there was a previous paper not our paper that had done this multi-PRS approach where they, um, they, for some traits, if you have a GWAS in another ancestry that is not European, 
you could then get those effect size and combine them and do like a linear combination of PRS, one for European ancestry and one for, say, African ancestry. Just linearly combine them and uh, weigh by a factor and um, and you did get slightly better predictions. So this paper is from 2017. So to be, to be clear, you would combine the, um, the coefficients from the European GWAS and from the African GWAS, and uh, the result would be a good predictor for an admixed population, right? For someone carrying, let's say, 30% of the European and 70% of African ancestry. So you would combine them with these weights. Yeah. That would be the best case scenario. Uh, that's like hypothetically. In practice, it was very underwhelming, both in that study and when we did it. So I only had like 9,000 individuals to run a GWAS on with African ancestry. So that's very small compared to 360,000 European ancestry. But we did that. And then we devised the PRS from those effect sizes instead of the European ones and try to predict height. So not surprisingly, that performed worse by itself than the European one, but that's probably just due to sample size. Uh, if we had a bigger GWAS, it would probably have been better. So then we combined them following this approach and we developed some additional approaches. Um, and all of it resulted in very minor increments. And But I really do think that was because our GWAS was very small um, because I have continued to work on this. And now I... I have like a bigger uh, meta GWAS combining other studies. And I I see that you can improve it more at these approaches um, when you have a decent sample size, um, although it's still very far from the maximum, which is what you observed in the European ancestries. But there is one conclusion of our paper is that there was some potential for that if we can get better sample size. So like ideally, Ideally, for an admixed individual in the future, if we have, like, let's say an African-American individual, if we have a GWAS done in European ancestry and one in African, ideally we can mathematically, with some training of the data, find a way to get the best predictor. Um, but reality is, like, we don't have those GWAS, and that's, like... And a lot of ancestries, we have no GWAS at all, not just that they're small in size. So... Um, and as you hinted at before, um, there might be a lot of variants that have causal effects that we don't even know because they haven't been screened. They haven't been captured by the GWAS. So there are a lot of like upstream problems with how the GWAS are done and they avoid mixing um, ancestries because that makes the GWAS more difficult to disentangle. Um, so there's reasons why GWAS are mostly done in one ancestry and historically why that ancestry has been European. Um, but now it's just a problem that perpetuates because uh, funding agencies want big GWAS and uh, big GWAS are more likely to be done in Europe and North America. And, um, and then even though you can recruit other ancestries, um, mixing them in the GWAS includes more work. Uh, which could have been a priority, you know, but it wasn't. So it, it includes more work disentangling what is just ancestry differences and what's actual causal difference in phenotype. And th that also, I imagine that also depends on your goal. If your goal is to find causal variants, uh, then probably you have more power in a more homogenous population. No? No. 
That's very interesting. Um, one thing that you greatly benefit from having a more diverse GWAS is you're better able to pinpoint what the causal variant is because then you have more uh, variation in these recombination profiles that I mentioned. So it allows for better fine mapping. It's a very big advantage of uh, having diversity in the GWAS. So you're better able to narrow it down. And there are a lot of methods just for that. Um, there's only so far you can go if you're looking at an homogenous population, especially one that is not particularly genetically diverse, like European ancestry. Uh, so like there's a lot more genetic diversity in Africa uh, as a continent, and it's very, very undersampled. And so uh, including just a bit of diversity in GWAS has great benefits in variant detection and fine mapping. Uh, there's a lot of literature on that. Um, in terms of prediction, it, you would get better prediction if you had better effect sizes for other ancestries. Um, and my current work, I'm seeing that if you have some diversity in the GWAS, you do better. Uh, like two main things will determine it, the sample size. So having a big GWAS is important. So it doesn't matter how diverse and amazing your GWAS is. If it's small, it's not. you're not going to get good effect size. They'll be very noisy. You need some diversity, but you also need size. And often the sizes you will find in things like the UK Biobank and also Biobank Japan, which has like, it's it's less than half of what the UK Biobank is, but it's still in the hundreds of thousands. And um, you don't have that kind of thing for a lot of other ancestries. So it's not going to get any better until we have that, really. That is... Um, that is safe to say. <laughs> so if, if these uh, more diverse GWASs are better in, it seems so far like in all respects, right? But both for discovering causal variants and also for prediction purposes, then what was the motivation for uh, having, the, is it just logistics? Is it harder to, to sample across the world than it is in, let's say, within the UK? Well, <laughs> historically, there's reasons why this happened, right? Like the funding, the money, um, and uh, obviously, you know, European centrism, like, uh, you know, and uh, in North America as well. So there's correlation between ancestry or actually race here or what is uh, socially, um, the social construct of it and representation in, in, in biomedical studies. So... So if, if you're a researcher whose project it is to um, investigate maybe the, the genetic underpinnings of schizophrenia, right, and you get the funding for that, wouldn't be that in your interest to, w with a given funding, it seems like you would get better results if you included more diverse populations? That's tricky. Um, so you would get better results for everyone um, in a sense, but... Um, due to our, like our current methods and difficulties um, and the sample size that you want. So there's a difficulty in recruiting, yes, um, although it's not unsurmountable. So that kind of funding and support usually happens in North America um, and Europe and also now like in Japan, um, in, in China maybe, and like some other countries it's starting to happen, right? And then you will recruit individuals from the population and you need a lot of individuals. So you have to make a decision. Is it going to be everyone the same ancestry, which methodologically makes things simpler? I'll comment on it briefly. 
um, or do you want to make it diverse? And mostly everyone chooses to make it homogenous, which personally, I think you've seen that I disagree, but uh, it could be argued methodologically that there's a reason for that because um, the funding agencies, they want big sizes and you want um, and you want to recruit that and it might be easier to to do that. But methodologically, even in the UK Biobank, where you have some diversity, still when they run the GWAS for height, they only look at the European ancestry, like white British individuals. So why did they do that? Honestly, it's, um, although now there's this pan UK Biobank resource where they do it for the other ancestries as well, um, um, Alicia Martin and others, but it's because it makes things a bit less complicated uh, to disentangle. So like if you're looking at a group that is somewhat homogenous in ancestry um, and presumably in other social economic factors um, and that are in the same region of the world, whatever, then you are sort of without really accounting for, you're sort of accounting for differences that would introduce um, noise in your data that you wouldn't be able to disentangle. So in an extreme example, let's imagine you have a group of a lot of individuals, some in, in a place like the UK, um, and a lot of them have European ancestry and the other group has um, some other ancestry. And then you run a GWAS and you detect some differences and, and you pinpoint to some variants. But actually, as it turns out, those variants have very different frequencies in those two groups. Um, and then you don't know if what you're capturing is a variant that has very different frequency in those groups because it is causal to that phenotype and that's why you see the phenotypic difference or because it's just different across the groups because of drift and the phenotype is different across the group for non-genetic reasons and what you're actually capturing is the ancestry difference that helps explain that difference in phenotype. So if we're very extreme, if some other ancestry group um, is getting much worse health outcomes or prenatal care or whatever, and um, that's not actually true, but let's hypothetically say, and then the, you end up with very different phenotypes for those two groups that is not genetic in origin. What is genetic is that there are some genetic differences in frequency between those groups. So then when you do a GWAS, you might conclude that some variants are associated with that that are not actually biologically associated with that. Um, and that can always happen in GWAS. It's always hard to be sure. But if you're reducing that um, other source of variation, it makes things a bit less complicated. So people do argue um, in that direction, and I understand, and it, it's true that you're introducing more complication. Um, but it's also not fair to keep doing GWAS that only represents a small proportion of the uh, genomic variation seen in the human species. And, um, and to devise polygenic risk scores that, you know, are published every week in, in big journals. Um, and it's most of them only, they, there will be a line saying we only did this for European ancestry individuals. So, um, I think it being more difficult at this point doesn't justify not doing it um, or not focusing our efforts in making those uh, methods better to disentangle. That makes sense. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds like we should just be investing in better, better methods, right? But methods that control for 
for those differences. So the the naive take would be just to include more predictors. If you include things like socioeconomic status and the, the location and other things like that, um, you'd probably reduce um, reduce the, these uh, undesirable um, correlations and, and confounding factors. But um, I'm sure it's more complex like that. We just need to... Yeah, methods. I think we also have to sometimes shift focus. Like it is true that it adds complications, but also think about all the benefits that it adds. In addition to being more fair and equitable, it's you can better, you detect more causal variance when you do this, when you include even a bit of diversity. Uh, that is well documented. You do better fine mapping. So you're going to get closer to causal variance more quickly if you do this and potential drug targets and whatnot. Um, so often we get like hooked on something that is a difficulty and don't look at like a change in perspective that this is what our species looks like. We have variation and that needs to be looked at instead of like swept under the rug. But often in science, especially in the early days of things, we try to, of course, keep things less complicated so we can gain some insight, which is is reasonable. I just think we have moved from that stage already in human genomics. And um, and I think a lot of people agree. There's definitely a shift happening. Um, but yes, I always like to take the opportunity to say that, um, that as it is, you know, these polygenic scores, uh, even the best ones, the most promising ones, they are restricted to individuals of European ancestry. So when you do your 23andMe or whatever, and you get a result, that's, you know, that's based on, I mean, they will say that there, it's written if you look for it. And, but it really, it doesn't say that we really don't have prediction for most of those things for other ancestries, right? So, and I don't mean just one company, I just mean in general, because that is a limitation of current science results. So returning back uh, back to your study, so you had these several hypotheses, what might be explaining the um, uh, the lower prediction accuracy um, of PRSs. And uh, did you find any, like I, I know that you had quite a lot of hypotheses that you examined. Uh, were any of them more successful in explaining this than the the two we already discussed, so the differences in allele frequencies and the linkage disequilibrium. So uh, we did look at a number of other things, and our big picture conclusion is that those two factors do influence it. They're not enough. Um, they're on their own or combined to explain the entire loss of accuracy we saw. Um, we also find evidence that including um, ancestry-specific effects could improve prediction, although that was heavily limited by the sample size we had. Um, and now, based on um, someone else's paper on BioArchive and work I'm doing, um, and a paper published earlier last year also, uh, there's reason to um, believe that with larger sample size, you could see better improvements. But and this is not final yet, but I don't think we would reach the same level of prediction you see in the European ancestry. And at this point, it's still unclear if it's because the GWASs, even the bigger ones, are smaller than the UK Biobank or or what's happening. I One conclusion from our study is that there have to be differences in effect sizes. Um, 
across the ancestries. And this is like the marginal effect size, which is an aggregate of the causal variant, whatever it is, and the variants like and the the variant that's tagging it plus everything that is inherited with it. So it's not necessarily the causal effect, but it's the marginal effect size. Um, uh, we also find evidence that even the direction of the effect is uh, is different. And we saw that because even when we did a PRS, where instead of weighing by the effect size, we weigh only by the sign, positive or negative. So we multiply by minus one or one. Um, we saw that same linear trend. So as if it was just a matter that the effect sizes from European ancestry don't really explain because they have other magnitudes in other ancestries, then we wouldn't have seen this pattern where there's no magnitude, there's just direction. Um, so that's very interesting and promising because uh, so these results combined convinced me that there's more going on than just um, allele frequency spectrum and LD differences, that there might actually be um, effect size differences. So there are a number of reasons why this could happen. There could be cases of some local adaptation. So like local uh, adaptation, one population, but not the other. Um, uh, epistasis, so like cis epistasis um, in one population, but not the other. Um, environment by ancestry factors that were very, very hard to detect. Um, and gene by environment uh, effects that are specific to certain environments. Um, what all of this suggested to me is that there was way more of those things going on than we would like to admit uh, when first we went into this. Um, and uh, and this is for like a trait that is relatively well understood, which is height, and which is estimated to be 80% heritable. So in other words, a trait that is not heavily influenced by the environment in like magnitude, apparently. But um, so even for that one, things are very complicated. Uh, so there are a number of limitations with our study. We're not really able to disentangle because these things are not independent. It's just the nature of how they are. Um, we don't know if we would see similar trends for other traits that have different architectures, different, um, more subject to selection, for instance, like diseases, you would expect more selection, um, which could be different across populations. Although there's some evidence for selection and height, but it's often inconclusive because uh, because of the data sets, there's still a lot of discussion on that. Um, so basically it's a very complicated problem. We should still keep trying to invest in these uh, multi-PRS approaches where you combine different ancestry PRSs, but that also depends on having GWAS for other ancestries, which we don't really have most of the time. And I think there's a lot of room for method development and investigation. So like papers like this one, uh, where we just try to disentangle things. So you mentioned um, epistasis, and that's ba basically interaction, right, between different different loci, uh, where one one locus affects the the effect size or even the effect direction of another locus. And uh, I understand it's probably challenging to include that in in the linear model because uh, if you include all the interactions you get an enormous number of uh, of coefficients uh, but uh, I'm curious first if you were able to to test 
that hypothesis? And, and are there, in general, approaches to include at least some of the interactions or like choose which interactions to include to, to gain more predictive power? That's a very good question. Um, uh, no, I did not do that. Um, I have been somewhat looking into this now. Like what, And there are a few methods out there um, being published about um, models that account for or that detect epistasis. Um, just in, in a general sense, I think one way to go about this is thinking that you have... Um, you have the genetic variance of a trait. And just like when in this basic uh, complex quantitative genetics uh, framework, you have like phenotype equals genotype plus environment, what, right? Or everything else that is not genetic. Within that genetic component, you can also subdivide that into, let's say, the the direct effects or however you want to call that plus this like indirect effect component, right? So <laughs> I think you can almost always turn something into a linear model if you add more terms. And there are some methods that do some version of that, which is yeah, overall how this works. So basically, if you have a data set where you're able to somewhat uh, reliably estimate the uh, how much of the these effects are direct um, then or how much of it is epistatic then you could like infer the other component it's definitely not simple um, I, I did not do that in this paper it's something I'm interested in I do think um, that might be part of the difference in prediction accuracy I also think it won't explain the remaining uh, problems uh, I, I think there's a way more complex problem than I thought at first when I um, started this project, um, which is cool because there's a lot of work to be done. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I don't know too much about that literature yet because it's something I'm only starting to work on now. Cool. And uh, is there anything else you, you would like to mention that we haven't talked about so far? No, that was uh, pretty good. Uh, comprehensive conversation. <laughs> I hope I haven't bored uh, your listeners. Cool. No, I, I think, well, I personally learned a lot and I think the listeners have too. So thanks a lot, Barbara, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you.